You ready? Do it. You don't look ready. I don't know what you mean by look ready. I mean, you're not in front of the mic. Okay, now I am. How's it going? It goes. Time keeps turning. Oh, yeah. I was Days keep going by. I was going to share with Sharice. Keep one not of, sleeping. Me too. Me too. You were going to share with me? I was going to share with you. You don't have to read the article, but I just came across this really interesting article. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash Let's get into it. Tell me, why would you share something with me and then not have me read it? It's actually quite short, but it's more about the underlying reactions that happen in the world. The whole article speaks about the role of military force in keeping some sort of, call it almost like harmony, right, in the world. Because military might I'm just skeptical like already. pushes people to not react and do things they and step out of line, right? So in the in the context oh, man, of the, I don't of know. the US, I can't say right. I have not read this well, article. In the context of the U.S., right, what they do is they they're utilizing military might in a way to exert power influence across the world. Like they yep. have all the military bases and yep, whatnot. Yep, yep. And it also used an example of a battle that happened, like I think late eighteen hundreds, where uh, there was like forty five hundred soldiers from this one tribe battling against a few hundred. I think it was British soldiers or something. And basically, there were very few casualties on the British side because they had machine guns. Okay. Okay. But now fast forward to today, what they're saying is that because of the increased number of drones that are being deployed, you no longer have to spend like $250 million on a fighter jet. You have a drone that might cost a million dollars. Yeah. Right. I'm following you. I don't know where this is going. And then, but the, the reason why this is interesting is that Going back to the whole role of the U.S. military, a lot of their partners keep U.S. dollars because they trade for military technology. Okay. But if drones come to the mix, you no longer need to keep U.S. dollars. So in many ways, the dependency on the U.S. dollar is no longer as strong. This has been such a weirdly political opening. Well, I mean, I just thought it was interesting. It's less about the political aspect is just a how things are so intertwined based off of these narratives. So All right, we'll in, go in, with that being the short, takeaway. Regardless of inflation or whatnot that's happening in the US, it's also an interesting thing how technology can disrupt the foundational power of like the US currency. Because you no longer have to depend on the US dollar to buy military technology. Sure. So I'm that, following you. That's why I thought it was interesting. I was not the militarization part. No, no, no. I just thought it was like how this thing led to that thing led to another thing. I have a somewhat interesting thing that is less serious, but also about geopolitical. Right, I don't you don't want to hear I'm it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Did you see the container ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal today? No. So I should I should know this. This, oh, this is, is pretty geopolitical. Funny. It is geopolitical, but I just feel honestly it made my day a little bit better because there's no way 
you have messed up as badly today as the person who is running that boat. Okay. So the Suez Canal is super narrow, right? Like extremely narrow. Like it doesn't fit the length of a container ship. Yeah. So container ships, you know what I'm talking about, right? With like the big cargo boxes, et cetera. They all have to go in like a straight file down the canal. And somehow this driver of this boat has wedged it at an angle in this canal. And so now they're trying to like excavate it. Anyway, it made my day. How did he mess it up though? I don't know. We don't know yet. But it's like backed up. It just seems like. Everyone who has, well, which is like globally. Like logistics. Loads of countries. Everyone's ships are now in like a massive traffic jam. There's a video or a photo of this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to look it up right now. Pull it up for me, Sharice. Wow. Sharice was not lying. That's pretty fucked up. It's like, it's literally like grounded off to the side. It's literally like at a 45 degree angle from the sides. Yeah, I just thought it was pretty interesting. I also forgot how narrow the canal is. Not that that's something I think about regularly. That person really messed up. Enough completely not cultural related stuff. Let's move on to... Moving fluffy on. cultural things, I guess. <laughs> you know how you said like a couple episodes ago that this has become sad, like a sad podcast? Like we're sad all the time. We talk about depressing stuff. Sad or we're just realist? Well, today's subjects are not particularly cheery either. Oh, they're not? Mine's pretty neutral. Anyways. You're me. I'll jump into it. All right. All right. My topic this week is what luxury brands can learn from Hermes about pricing by Daniel Langer. Or is it Daniel Langer? Either one. Where'd you find this? Uh, This is courtesy of Jing Daily. And I want to make it a habit of highlighting authors since they're doing most of the heavy lifting. I mean, we're just sort of recontextualizing (laughs) their work, right? And trying to make sense of it and bring it to our world because they're interesting concepts. This is true. We quote heavily. All right. So tell me about Daniel Langer or Langer. So actually, this is his bio on Jing Daily. So this should give you some clarity and color as to why he is reputable. Daniel Langer is the CEO of luxury lifestyle and consumer brand strategy firm Equité. So it makes me think that it's actually Langer because it's French. And he's the professor of luxury strategy and extreme value creation at Pepperdine University in, in Malibu, California. He consults some of the leading luxury brands in the world, is the author of several luxury management books, a global keynote speaker, and holds luxury masterclasses in Europe, the U.S., and Asia. The story starts off with a sneaker company. There's two choices that come to mind. It might be Mark Gaynor's No One, No Dot One, which we did a story for on Macon. Mm-hmm. Or it might be this, the, I don't know why it's so hard for me to say this, the Shoe Surgeon. With these two brands, basically what they did was they created high-end luxury shoes that combine the vibes of like LA and Venice Beach and a bespoke experience. So a customized experience. And when they first released, these shoes were really expensive, like undeniably expensive. Like you mean the actual retail price? Yeah. Okay. So it was like into the thousands potentially. Per per pair of shoes? Yeah. I mean they're bespoke, you know. Okay. uh, Sure. I don't know. I just never looked at one. Well we don't I don't even know what brand it is. It's one of the two brands, I think. Okay. That's fine. This is just an anecdote. This is just yeah. an example, right? Yeah. After they put the shoe out, they were actually a little bit afraid that the cost might be too high because they priced it similar to other bespoke dress shoes. Uh, but actually, it turns out they were maybe pricing it too low. Based on what? 
Well, let me get into it. Uh, this is what happens when I don't read your notes. Yeah. If I don't read your notes, then- I'm going to start doing this. Just I tee like up regularly. Yeah. Do your notes at the very last second so I can't see you. When you're thinking of pricing, you often don't include the value of the story. So the value of the story being like the emotional resonance, why people buy into something, why they get excited about something. I mean, the story is hard to price. Yeah, very hard to price, which is sort of, in many ways, the kind of the premise of this article. So one part of the pricing that is often not considered is added luxury value. And this is a quote that's taken directly from the piece. When it comes to products, the story-driven value component necessary for luxury brands was significantly higher than what the price conveyed. Consumers were confused and did not buy as much as they would in a better alignment of ALV or added luxury value and pricing, leading to lower profitability, volume, and revenue. But after correcting its approach, the brand began to thrive. So meaning, when you start considering this into the overall pricing strategy, then it changes how people react, right? And I mean, let's not get too, too deep into pricing psychology because if something's too cheap, then it doesn't convey enough value, for yeah. example, like a cheap bottle of wine. In short, I think many brands and even us as creators use what I would say pretty binary metrics to establish our value. So this is how I think most people think about it or not, because I do get a lot of questions on pricing. So to use an example, it might be, you know, Sharice is releasing a t-shirt and that t-shirt costs $10 to make and she'll add a very traditional markup on top of that. And that markup might be 50%, right? Sure. Or, or it might be that $10 t-shirt might be sold to a, a, an account, like a wholesale account for $20. Okay. And then they sell it for $40 with sure. a traditional sort of double, double yep, yep, approach. Yep. And I think another way of looking at it from a creator standpoint too is that this is a little bit different because this is more like an agency example. But if Sharice is executively producing a project, right? And her value is actually bringing in the talent, managing the talent and making sure all the talent plays nicely together. Yeah. She herself can actually redefine what the value is but she doesn't need to be like hey well my video editor is gonna cost a thousand dollars like there's value on top of that in terms of how you're able to like recontextualize and be like well actually my ability to manage and bring together the necessary vision and perspective to execute this on time is actually really valuable not so just that but the fact that these are people i know and work with and who want to work with me right yeah. that's part of the reason that you've tapped me for this project yeah and like one one of the things i like to think about when it comes to pricing is just i don't know if you feel the same i think i'm sure you have because it's happened to you but that feeling of dread when you throw out a, a price and they say yes immediately yeah it's the worst it's not the worst but it's also like I a mean, weird feeling it's, it's up there on bad things based off of that experience did you ever start to change your pricing strategy. When I was an earlier freelancer, I was very much like, this is my hourly rate. This is my estimate for how many hours this is going to take me. And I put a very small cushion on top of yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. So like, let's just use round numbers. Let's say $100 an hour and then 10 hours, that would be a thousand. And then I would just mark it up by like 10% and go a thousand one hundred contingency or yeah, something yeah yeah which is dumb yeah i'm just gonna straight up say dumb yeah and then after like maybe a year or two years 
it changed it to be I mean, this is so not scientific, but I'm going to just say this anyway. I change it to be whatever I think my first figure is, double it. Yeah. Just double it because I consistently underprice myself so much. So yeah. I, yeah. I went with that and that has wound up being closer yeah. to the correct estimate. So hold on to that. I want to come back to that. I just want to finish this article because to round off this piece, what they also discuss is the story of the Hermes Birkin bag. Yeah. And if you're not familiar with Birkins, it's probably the most recognizable luxury women's handbag. Yeah. Also, the example for rare rarity, for yeah. exclusiveness. I think that in the luxury space beyond maybe like, I wouldn't even say a Rolex sub, Submariner is necessarily like that definitive piece for men. Yeah. To the same extent. But like, yeah, for example, when it comes to females or women, I think that that is the sort of the upper echelon of a luxury item that fulfills all the check boxes that people use as a case study. I mean, I think you can, this is, I mean, I know it's not a discussion about gender, but you could be a man and want a Birkin oh, bag. Oh yeah, that's true. Actually, Pharrell had like a really massive one. The point one. is that the Birkin bag, it's so exclusive. It's not even just about whether you have money on hand. It's that you have to have money and somehow Access. finagle your way yeah. into a situation where you can purchase one. The story of the Birkin is actually pretty interesting. I didn't know this. In 1981, British socialite model and actress Jane Birkin hopped on an Air France flight for Paris. And for Jane, she never carried a proper handbag because she didn't really find one that she felt fit her lifestyle. And she would just carry on this busted ass basket. And during that trip, she was lucky enough to be sat next to Jean-Louis Dumas, who actually was helping Birkin, Jane, with some of her belongings that had fallen out of her bag. And he said, hey, you know what? Let me make you a bag that you will actually use and you'll enjoy using. And that was the story of the Birkin. So today, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't check these numbers. I think they're, they're probably about right. But the cost of a Birkin starts at about 9K USD and it increases. And actually, in the last few years, it's done a pretty admirable job of keeping and increasing in value, which is pretty, pretty impressive. But I think most luxury goods have increased in value because people are just less price sensitive at the very high end. I'm just trying to Google the price. Yeah, because I, I think different markets and regions will also have different prices. Like the price of a Birkin probably in Hong Kong is going to be different than in China than in Paris. No, nothing to add. I think yeah. the story is interesting. Yeah. So to go back to the original point that you had made around your pricing strategy, at what point did you feel comfortable redefining a pricing strategy that seemed to bake in intangibles? And I actually, I know that as a creator, you don't necessarily have the same brand story to rely on, but what you are relying on is like some sort of like intangible. I mean, part of what allows me to change my pricing strategy was just financial security. If I'm not in a position where I have to do work, then I feel more comfortable asking for more mm -hmm. at the risk of losing jobs, losing potential clients. Yeah. I think also... But did you become more confident in your abilities? At some point, did that actually contribute to your ability to price things differently? Yeah, yeah. I was about to say, you know, it's interesting what you just said about story, because I do think creators can tell strong stories about themselves mm -hmm. as individuals and that becomes part of how they price i'm actually thinking of joshua kissy yeah who 
is a photographer and now has had the opportunity to work um, globally with renowned creatives on music videos and other things. Anyway, my point is that you can include elements of both your personal story, like who you are, where you're from, where you worked. Yes. Along with, I was just about to say professional elements. And so I think for me, just as an example, you know, if you've been freelancing a couple of years, then you start to get comfortable with speaking about the work you've done and how, how come you're worth the price that you're setting yourself up. Have I, have I referred to the Scott Galloway email before? Which email? Like an email to you? No, no, not to me. It's like a newsletter. No mercy, no malice. It's like an exact like visual representation. Let's see if I find it. Oh yeah, here it is. Found it from quite a while ago, actually. Well, relatively speaking, November fifteenth, twenty nineteen. It's something that I, I like to refer to a lot because what he does is break down how certain brands achieve this massive valuation, and for him. Any company that creates more than $10 billion in shareholder value does one of two things. Extend time, as in more time, saving time, like convenience, or enhance time. In the context of enhancing time, what he means is that he used the example of LVMH, which allows you to enjoy the finest in life and increase your selection set of mates, which is enhanced. So basically, if you have an LVMH product, theoretically, you'll be able to enhance who you have access to because it signals money or whatever, right? Sure. I'm following. Yeah. So I think that's like a really interesting way of putting it in terms of enhancing time. So you can almost look at creative work in a similar way because you can either in, you can either be more convenient because you're making it such a streamlined process, but you're also enhancing our interaction. It's not pulling teeth. Like if Sharice is going to hire me, she knows that I'll both make her job easier because of experience et cetera, et cetera. But also the way she sets up the interaction can also be valuable. So that's why I think that the whole intangible soft skills part of creative work is actually something that we might overlook too often. Like if you want to work with somebody because they're great, I actually think that it generates more return repeat clients. Well, I was also thinking about, you know, this article is not about individual creators. No. Actually, the I article actually just is took about- it in put it into an into a way and a concept that I felt was relevant to our world. Sure, definitely. Anyway, the article is about the Birkin bag and perceived value through story. And you as a consumer, you're attracted to that additional perceived value through story beyond like the material, right? Yeah. How I also think about it for individual creators is like for not every project, but for some projects, working for a company to hire a specific creator gives them a story as well to talk about their company. Let's say a luxury brand taps a up-and-coming artist. It's not just the actual illustration that the artist makes, but they get to also borrow that artist's story. Yeah, their equity, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, no, that's that's also very valid. So. so if you can, I mean, it sounds terrible, but you can sell that as part, or you should at least consider that as part of your pricing. Yeah, It's not just that like I'm making an illustration, but I'm letting this brand company include me in how they talk about what they're doing yeah yeah because that is something that's really fascinating too because it makes you wonder can you as an individual creator create your own story and the the answer is arguably yes right the body of work you create in your own spare time that defines your story 
how you try to approach and get new opportunities, which then lead to being part of the story. Yeah. Like, I think those are two things that are actually pretty interesting takeaways. It's number one, the story that you have that people might want to latch onto to work with you. And number two, how do you manage the relationship to enhance the time spent? Because in many ways, these are things that I think are a bit of a framework approach to like how you want to work with other people and how you want to value your own work. Mm. Because intangibles are always the most difficult thing. Like I think we default to margin pricing because it's just so bang on simple. Well, and you like to think that there's a standard. Yeah. Like if I'm making a thing and you're making a thing, there's some kind of like baseline for how much this should be worth yeah. monetarily. But it's not really true. Yeah. Like there are always going to be restrictions that as much as you want to be like, well, my story is worth this much. If you need a paycheck or the client, someone you really want to work with, then that kind of all goes out the window. So while I think that there is some sort of nice, clean approach towards having a pricing mechanism in the back of your mind, I almost never default to it because I'm always, I, I use it as a starting point, but it, it hardly is ever the same on the other side when I'm, when everything's all said and done. There's so many, yeah, that, and I kind of enjoy that actually. I like the fact that I'm always forced to not commoditize my work, but also think twice about like, hey, how do I maximize value? And I think that's a really weird way of putting it, but I don't know if anyone, I don't know if people necessarily want to hear this, but creative services and work for hire, it's still very transactional. It's like for profit. Someone's profiting on the other end. So why shouldn't you try to maximize your profit if they're going to profit off your work? I mean, it doesn't always feel good, right? That's the obvious answer. I mean, you're... But if you do it properly, then you're enhancing your own private time. Yeah. I mean, you have to think about it that way. Yeah. It's weird because I, I used to never... Th it's not that I used to never think like this. I used to think it was like this weird, gross way of thinking of things. Until I realized, and that's another thing too, you kind of have to go through the process of seeing the upside for you to buy into a concept. I mean, we've been yammering on about this for many episodes, it feels like, but I think part you said gross part of the reason it feels gross is because you are even if it's a high price tag you are still putting a price tag on your story and your creative work mm -hmm. which is weird yeah weird part of living in a capitalist society anything else you want to add the part of pricing that people might also want to use as a way to like define the measuring stick is like what is the minimum viable price you'll do something and then find a way to create a buffer on top of that and start on top of the buffer. And that's exactly what Cherie says. She's like, well, I used to have a price and now I just double it and that becomes my buffer. That's all I have. Cool. Move on. My subject today is something that happened quite recently. Alexi McCammond is a political journalist who got hired by Condé Nast to be editor-in-chief at Teen Vogue. And then not too long after, they uh, rescinded their offer. The article comes from Elizabeth Spires in her newsletter, My New Band Is, 
Elizabeth Spires <laughs> has a long editorial history. Fast Company, Fortune, WAPO, etc. New York Magazine, The Insurrection. List goes on. Okay. So the news on the surface is that, like, in early March, Condé Nast hires this 27-year-old political reporter, formerly at Axios, to be the editor-in-chief, right? And then the mainstream narrative on Twitter and other places is that her departure is because of some racist tweets she sent at the age of 17, specifically racist towards Asians. And there were two advertisers that pulled their advertising from Teen Vogue, one being Ulta, the beauty company, which is quite big. And that is the news that's out there about why Connie Nass rescinded their offer. Elizabeth Spires has a slightly different take or a more complex take, yeah. let's say. Okay. And it's that the tweets are part of it, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff about Condé Nast and the company and sort of inter-colleague relationships yeah. that probably resulted in the rescinding of the offer, which was not just dependent on the tweets existing. The tweets are bad, sure, but that's like not just the main thrust of it as to why she was probably not a good fit and therefore didn't yeah. get the offer. I mean, the, the tweets themselves, not not justifiable, but I also have done a lot of dumb things that luckily aren't on the record, right? So I think that in general, when you look at that as the circumstances, that's, that's like the very superficial, like easy to use as a reason and to scapegoat. I don't think scapegoat is the right word, is it? I mean, it's kind of. Um, the way Spires talks about it is that Condé Nast threw... McCammon under the bus with the tweets. Oh, totally. Yeah, because for sure. Condé Nast, to the external audience, uses the tweets as the best way to say, this is why we're rescinding this offer. Because Team Vogue is so big, Condé Nast is so big, national publication, lots of eyes on it. T hiring people is sort of big news, right? So they made a public announcement that they are making this offer because not every company has to do that, right? So they make this big news about offering McCammon the post as EIC, and then they have to, you know, make this official rescinding of the offer. And people will want to know why. And Connie Nast says it's the tweets. Um, Spires says it probably actually has to do with McCammon having no managerial experience, no experience editing, and no fashion experience. You think so? What do I mean? Like, what you do think, you mean? Like, that's part of it. But also, I'm also wondering if... Her dismissal is, well, I guess I'm what I'm trying to say is, wouldn't they have considered that stuff upon hiring? I mean, some of this is conjecture, yeah. right? And there's also conjecture here by Spires that the main decision came from Anna Wintour. And Spires also says that she thinks Anna Wintour, while, you know, arguably a genius in bringing Vogue to what it is, might not be the best manager or the most in touch with how to navigate a changing editorial landscape right now at this moment right and i think an interesting question is whether you think mccammon would have been a good fit minus the tweets okay based off of her experience based off of her cv how much allowance do you give for someone with no experience to take a job editor-in-chief at team vogue is a pretty big deal yeah is, Wait, do you would you like let's agree with that baseline i'll be honest Teen Vogue to me, I always had this weird perception because maybe like let's say a few years ago, 
by seeing teen in the title, I always thought it was just for like actual teens, but it's not. I mean, it's for young people. It is for young people, but it's it's definitely like sub 30. Yes. Right? It's not about it's not about topics that only affect high schoolers. No. That's what I mean. Yes. So I don't disagree with it, but I do think that we've seen a lot of places forego credibility and just like pedigree for some sort of uh, narrative. I'm using the word narrative, not in a, in a pejorative way, just like it's what culture wants right now. I mean, but the thing is that and I that's did not some to additional, say, yeah, yeah, that's not to say that it's like good or bad. It's just that when LV brings in Virgil, right? Most people would say he's not the most traditionalist of designers, but he fits a persona that understands culture. And sometimes that is more important than like, do you know how to manage a team? But I think Virgil is better sorted, like better yes. suited for that LV post than actually McCammon for this. Yes, editor I don't disagree, but I think they're similar. Post. You know, I know what you mean in terms of like this kind of attractive hire for storytelling reasons, as opposed to like actual professional managerial Is, is McCammon a high profile individual? But she's high profile. Profile, but I would not say like very high profile, like middle average political journalist high profile. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like she could become someone who is she, more high profile. This sounds but not, really bad, but does she like check certain boxes? Okay, but let me tell you this. So I did some more digging. She was to replace Lindsay Wagner Peoples, who ran Teen Vogue from November 2017th to January 2021 when she went back to the cut. And for reference, okay, Wagner Peoples is 30. She was the youngest editor-in-chief of Condé Nast before the McCammond hire. Um, she was previously fashion market editor for The Cut. She's co-founder of the Black and Fashion Council. She's worked at Style.com, Teen Vogue, o, Oprah Magazine, bachelor's degree in art and journalism. Mm -hmm. And so in all of these professional ways, she's such a good fit for that Teen Vogue editor-in-chief mm. role. And it is a huge departure to go from that to McCammon's CV. And before Wagner Peoples, it was Philip Picardi. So Who's and, that? Um, a big fashion designer. Oh, okay. So it is weird, I think. I genuinely think so. Like, yeah. And I don't know. I'm, I was kind of thinking about this. And I was like, I'm not trying to be a gatekeeper about like, oh, you have to have like eight to 10 years experience before you can do a job. But I do think it's not necessarily a good decision to pick yeah. someone who's just like an Axios political journalist. I think that you're actually going to see this more and more for various reasons. Because everything you mentioned is in theory a trajectory that was a little bit more achievable five years ago in terms of all those different accolades and all those different jobs on her CV. But as we discussed last week, People don't necessarily need to go or stay very long at a traditional media company anymore because they can go and do their own thing. But on top of that, what you're also seeing is that because of the demise of media publications, there's just fewer places and opportunities. Sure. So what you're going to be stuck with is actually these mid-tier, not big enough to go set off on their own, but haven't really worked at a lot of different places because there aren't that many places to work at. You know what I mean? And I, you don't have to, I wouldn't get too hung up. I know you were going to interject on my point around working on your own Substack, right? To that extent. But I don't think that's the main point I'm trying to 
suggest here? The question that is valid for me, again, beyond the tweets, is that she has no editing experience. And I find that very questionable to go from no editing experience to editor of a national magazine. And then also no work in the subject area. And even though Teen Vogue has become more politically opinionated over the last few years, arguably at the hand of Wagner Peoples, it's not just like a political beat. So that anyway, that's my personal opinion. But Spires does say that she suspects internally at Teen Vogue, those were some of the staffers concerns. So the team at Teen Vogue wrote a letter. We don't know the exact contents of that letter. One of the things they highlighted was the tweets. Spire's conjecture is that probably internally there was a lot of general discontentment about this appointment. Like why not promote someone internally that has probably similar experience and knows the brand better? That's a good argument. Could, you know, promote someone internally. Could also, probably there are other people within that space that might have been more likely candidates than McCammond. So that's one aspect of this news, I think, is that this question about professional qualification. Mm. You know, what is enough for a position? And it's it's not that I don't think McCammon could have no job at a fashion publication. It is just a big, to me, in my mind, it still feels like a big leap. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, to talk about the tweets, which is about, you know, did did this have to play out publicly in this way? And how does this story change because of this, like, kind of public arena? And I don't really like, uh, there's an aspect of this that I find difficult to talk about because actually the tweets about McCammon had surfaced prior to this moment in time. Mm. They'd surfaced about two years ago, right? Because she's 27 now. She tweeted them when she was 17. So somewhere around like when she was 25, 25, they came up and she apologized publicly for the insensitivity, right? And said, you know, something along the lines of, I'm a different person. I've learned, et cetera. Okay. And then after this appointment, another person on social media who has a following, like who has an audience, brought up the tweets again to say maybe not a good decision and it makes me uncomfortable Mm -hmm. that type of revisiting again someone's past to get like kind of a public jury on things yeah I, i don't know i just feel like i understand private company concerns okay like let's say you let's say we worked you know let's say we worked at Macon with a team of 20 people, Mm -hmm. okay? So we're a bigger company. And then you wanted to, I don't know, spend more time on something else. So you're going to bring in an editor-in-chief to replace you. Mm -hmm. And you bring in an editor-in-chief that I find to be, that I personally find to be professionally unqualified Mm -hmm. and then also happens to have like some tweets about being racist towards Asians. Yeah. I find it valid that I should tell you my concerns. Yeah. Like as your employee, and you as my boss and this person being my new boss, right? But I find it weird if someone externally, not oh, at making, yeah. do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Kind of like publicly on Instagram or Twitter posts and is like, 
oh, this is whack. Like Eugene yeah. hired this guy. Like when you frame it like that, I, I see it. I'm not saying there should be no accountability. I find it weird that the accountability where is so, from, yeah. Where it's coming from. I guess for me, I've, I look at these hires as interesting things, but generally speaking, I have less confidence in hires at big companies, like individual hires, because to change the, the trajectory actually requires so much investment of time, resources, that I almost don't even, like, I don't, I'd be interesting to see if, like, people saw a discernible increase or decrease in quality and what that even means based off of if she did come on board. I think one of the bigger, bigger issues that play is it almost feels as though the hire itself, based off of all the things going against the hire that were publicly known beforehand, it seemed like a bit of like a, like a Hail Mary where they just were looking for something to fill a void. And that I think- What do you mean? Who was looking for a Hail Mary to fill a void? Teen Vogue. Like based off of- You mean to hire for that position? Yeah, to hire her, to hire McCammon. I'm sure they could have found someone else. That's what I'm saying. Like, like, but you think they could, which, which you'd be like, yeah, of course. Like, why would you hire someone that seems so underqualified and f not from your world? Okay. I don't know if this is true or not, but again, like Spire's hypothesis is that it came directly from Anna Winter mm. and that Anna Winter is too big to say no to. And somehow Winter was like, oh, this young girl seems really up and coming and a known name she's gonna be this bright star like that's my pick yeah end of story yeah so i mean i believe that based off of my own experiences at companies where that can happen i, I think this quote from spires does explain the entire debacle in a nutshell spires writes that you are mostly reading about McCammon's tweets does not mean that McCammon's tweets are the only issue at play here. The tweets are the only thing about the impropriety of the hire that Condé can't justify and the only thing that's already lost them advertisers. That this is about the tweets is the story Condé Nast wants to tell and the one that's the best one for them. That doesn't mean it's the whole story. So under the bus goes Alexi McCammon. So in a way, Condé Nast might have even appreciated the tweets coming so that they could have like this sort of publicly Final, defensible yeah. way to be like, oh, never mind. We're going to look again. I just think it's so crazy that they could get that far and announce someone publicly only to like hope for this alley-oop to get rid of her. They knew about the tweets. Yeah. In the process of hiring. I also... Like they did not pretend like they didn't know. I mean, also two years ago versus now, like especially who the the tweets are directed against is also a thing that yeah, the timing has a, a much heavier impact or larger impact. Not I mean, to say it's acceptable, it's just like... No, no, yeah. I'm never acceptable. But the, in terms of um, PR, timing yes. does play a huge element into this. And especially because that's the thing to it. If no advertiser dropped out, I think it would have been a different story. I always say like, it doesn't really matter until it it fucks with your money, to be honest. Yep. Like that's the the reality of the situation for a lot of people is like, just don't mess with my money. The fact that also it was shared widely by people with audiences, that's the other thing, right? Yeah. Is that they can see that, like if just a couple of people with like a couple hundred followers had shared it, it would have been no big deal, right? I wonder what, how she feels about it. Alexi? Yeah. She po she posted a Oh yeah, public, it was like a half-assed, like, that's what people said was like a half-assed. It was a half like a, I've chosen to depart from Condé Nast sort of framing 
And it was all like, as a woman of color who has written about people of color, like this isn't what I stand for. And probably she will go on to work at, you know, publications more similar to Axios. Like, I believe that and continue sort of this political journalist beat. That's what I would believe. I think an interesting question as well. I'm not sure when the last time we talked about this about is like, when do you forgive teenagers for the stupid shit they do? And when does that type of forgiveness go from personal forgiveness to big headline job? Because especially nowadays, people don't really want to accept apologies. I feel like apologies are a moot point. Like people have made up their mind and they're not open to having their mind changed. So it's almost like just don't get caught as bad as it sounds. Like just don't get caught. Or don't be stupid in the first place. But that's so hard, man. Like are you going to tell like a 16, like no one at 16 would have told me, don't do that, Eugene. Nobody. And obviously like my friends wouldn't have told me that. My friends didn't know better. I was actually, it's funny because I was looking through my Lightroom catalog of photos dating back to like 2003 because I just like, I've had photos from that long ago, right? And I'm like, dude, this shit wouldn't fly today. And this would have been in video too and it would be on social media. I think there is a distinction to be made between like the types of stupid shit you could get into trouble for. You could get into trouble for things that you can do stupid shit that actually doesn't hurt anyone, like any yeah. specific individual. And you can say racist and sexist things like on Twitter and Instagram that are positions that other people disagree with. OK. And then obviously there are crimes, right? Like you can actually commit some yeah. type of crime that demonstrates racism and sexism, et cetera. Okay, that is like assault or harassment. So there's a there's a spectrum of things that you could have done that then comes out. And obviously the last things I mentioned are much more serious and do not deserve as much of like a recuperation from. Yeah. From my POV. And then in general, I just feel. And you can disagree with me. I just feel like there are so many people in the world. Like Alexi's not the only person who is able to do that job, it cannot be that hard to find a candidate who has not been publicly racist. Yeah. But then you also, that's not the requirement for the job though. That's not the, the job description isn't don't be publicly racist. Right. But I still, I still think there are enough people in the world who can also do all of the other things who have those professional qualifications and also isn't racist. I, Part of me thinks that maybe you're wrong. Damn. But the reason why is also because Teen Vogue, I assume, is at the upper echelons of media opportunities to work at, yet they haven't been able to pull that person. That person being anyone that's better than maybe her. Maybe they're just not looking hard enough. But then that's still this because is, it's not it's not popping out at them. This is my general response to, you know, when people have been accused of sexual assault and like people say oh what a pity so and so celebrity won't get to star in films anymore i'm like is that the only celebrity like is that the only male or female actor you have available to like Mm -hmm. play a role i don't know that's just always my response is like i don't understand why only just this one specific individual 
can do this yeah. job. Someone in the making discord, Andrew M said he picked this subject to talk about because cancel culture isn't addressing the deeper issues at play. It's just a cycle that repeats itself, finding new subjects to call out without implementing any systems or frameworks for lasting change. And I, you know, actually, just before this, I did come out kind of hard on people who make mistakes. But I think on the lighter spectrum of things of like shit you can wind up doing that becomes public. This is true, right? That it's not helpful to just like exclude people from ever working again and everyone has to drop them forever as opposed to restorative justice, which is this idea of hopefully people seeing why what they did could be different. I actually think we went too light on this part of the the topic itself. What do you mean? In terms of highlighting the underlying challenges and issues that need to be fixed as opposed to the actual act itself. So we kind of touched upon it, we danced around it, but the reality is that there's systemic issues within Condé Nast. Yeah, and sure. I, I think that that itself is probably the more interesting thing because every single cancel culture moment or just any social movement in general starts and stops quite quickly like it, yeah. it never actually carries through to the to the very end i mean i'm thinking about bon appetit which is also Condé Nast. it's that it could be a lot of things it could be black lives matter it could be a lot of things where it gets to a certain point but then you soon realize that without organization and without leadership not to say those things don't have it, but like obviously the bigger the challenge, the more of that you need. You can't discount for a minute that like the the raw energy that and the emotional investment into quote unquote canceling or calling someone out isn't enough to actually make a change because you need to be much more disciplined about how do you turn that energy and excitement into something that actually changes. So that's kind of my takeaway because people that initiate these these moments and these movements don't have bad intentions. They probably have good intentions. Yep. But then they also fail to recognize that if I, mean, I actually want to... also wanna, have bad intentions. Potentially. But let's stay positive. <laughs> sure. I mean, the thing but, about... Yeah. Can, sorry, do you want to finish your sentence? Oh, I was just going to finish... I was just going to say, yeah, like... I don't... I think that social movements are not that different than running a business or a company in that you have an energy and a passion about solving something now put it into a repeatable, consistent framework. The common thing we see about cancel culture is that it latches onto individuals. So this one individual said these bad things at this moment in time, and they fucked up, and we should never hire them again. No company should ever hire them. Whereas, actually, as you're saying, as Andrew said, and as maybe we didn't say enough, is like, the much bigger problem is on a systems level, like the actual org company of Condé Nast and how they're set up. How do they hire? What is their process of finding candidates and vetting them? And what is the package in terms of salary compensation, et cetera? The thing is that from an external view, that's very hard to totally change, you know, and maybe and the only thing I think of is that you should support unions. I, I think that kind of nice is a bad example for what I said before, but it is 
not that different well, it's, because it's just it's hard rooted. on a private company level exactly exactly that's why it's so easy to latch onto like individual figures and say this individual figure who happens to be an employee at big company messed up but it's much harder to say oh big company you need to change these aspects of your structure about hiring about compensation etc yeah good place to cap things off for the day if you are interested in hearing more about macon reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture you can visit us at macon.com m-a-e-k-a-n.com you can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms if you like this podcast you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash macon also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at sharice at macon.com or eugene at eugene at macon.com. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.